wonder how you'd finish off this sentence. The end of all things is near, therefore, what would you say? The end of all things is near, therefore, what? What would you say? How should we respond? Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and you'll find that on page 1,220, page 1,220, as we continue this series looking at this letter. I'm going to read from verse 7 to verse 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please help me now to speak your very words and to serve in your strength so that we as a church may use the gifts that you've given us in a way that will bless your people, reach the lost, and do so depending upon your grace and strength. We long that Christ will be glorified in all that we do. Amen. When I pastor a church in the United States, I, we, had, uh, we used to take some of the men away for a men's retreat every now and again. Maybe we'll get around to doing that here at Charlotte Chapel. Uh, there was a very rustic place down the Spokane River where we went to stay. And I remember one time there were about 60 men that went to this place. Uh, one of the men chose not to stay overnight with us because he was the chief executive officer of a large hotel chain group in, uh, in, in three or four states of America. And it so happened that just a mile down the river was a really nice hotel that he was in his group and he decided that he'd rather stay there than in one of our rustic cabins. His personal secretary rang on ahead to the hotel to say that he was coming to stay for the night. Now, can you imagine what impact that would have on the hotel manager? The CEO of this large hotel chain is coming to stay in your hotel. What would you do? If you were the manager and you got that call, we'd just go, ah, oh, well, I don't think so. No, I think you would be checking that the hotel is really clean. 
And in particular, the, the room that he's going to be staying in is absolutely spotless. You're going to make sure that uh, the people serving food in the kitchen, they know who's coming and they're not going to do one bad meal that night. You're going to get everyone prepared. Everyone on the desk is going to be bright and perky and helpful because the CEO is coming. That would be true, wouldn't it? Well, did you notice that Peter has far more significant news for us in verse 7? The end of all things is near. He's already reminded us, already reminded us back in verse 5, that we will all have to give an account to him, to God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And he further underlines this in verse 7 by saying, the end of all things is near. And what he's saying by that is that history is coming to an end point when Jesus Christ returns as king and judge. And he's going to return in full glory. And that's a bit bigger than a CEO of a hotel chain turning up, isn't it? Knowing that you will see him face to face, knowing that we will one day bend the knee to him and give an account to him, what should our priorities be? That's the point of this section. Uh, You know, what should we do knowing that he will soon return? Now, before I get to the priorities, I, I would imagine there's an objection rising in some of your minds. Some of you are saying, well, hang on, Paul, that was, what, 2,000 years ago? Uh, From that, you know, what does Peter mean, near? And we should remind ourselves from the big, uh, from the perspective of the big picture of the Bible, which starts with creation and ends with the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, that actually all the key events have already happened. That the The coming of Christ the first time, his death and resurrection, mark that everything has been done. There is nothing left more to do for the end of all things. And so we are in the final days, and we have been in the final days for the last 2,000 years. And the only reason that there is a gap between his coming there and his return is that actually God is gracious and patient. He doesn't want to see people perish. And so he's given us this time so the good news of salvation can be shared throughout all the world. That all the nations can, can know the good news that they can be right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Their rebellion can be forgiven. Their sins can be covered if they'll turn to the Lord Jesus, bow the knee to him and receive his amazing grace. And we are in this time of preaching that great news of repentance and faith. And really there's nothing left to do in the great scheme of history than this final event of Christ coming. The teaching of the Old Testament was very much that the day of resurrection would be the final day of judgment. It would be the day when all of history is wrapped up. And uh, what Peter is saying here is that actually all the, the big events have happened, creation, fall, the call of Abraham, the exodus, the formation of Israel, they're entering into the land, the kingship, the temple, the exile, the coming of Jesus who fulfills all of it. All the ancient prophecies have been fulfilled in him. And so the only last event now is the return of Christ, the judgment day. Now we don't know when Christ is going to return. Uh, It could be another thousand years. It could be one year. It could be next week. Um, Everything is set. Everything is ready. What we do know for certain is that if Peter could say the end of all things is near in the first century, then on the 21st century we can certainly say it is very near. 
So what should our priorities be? How should we live and respond in the light of this? Well, he gives some pretty practical things, doesn't he, in verses 7 to 11. And they're not hard to understand. The question that is more challenging is this. Are they our priorities? So three main things here. Firstly, keep your head. Keep your head clear to pray. Secondly, keep loving and serving one another. And thirdly, keep glorifying God. Those are the priorities that we should have in the light of his return. So let's um, think about those. But notice with me before we dive into them that they are almost the exact opposite of the priorities of the pagan culture that surrounded them in the first century. And I would suggest that surrounds us in the 21st century. Look back at verse 3. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. See, so while the culture promotes losing control, getting out of your head, and we know all about that on the weekend of a Six Nations tournament, um, they are to have exactly the opposite um, priority. They're supposed to keep their, a clear head. And so while the culture around us promotes lust and using other people to satisfy your own desires, uh, he's teaching them to know that you should love and serve other people's needs. And while this culture promotes worshipping yourself and worshipping the stuff of this world, he calls on them to worship and glorify God. It's the exact opposite of the way the culture is. So let's think about these uh, three points. Firstly, keep your head clear to pray. Verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. It's not a hard concept, this really, is it? Imagine if my friend, the CEO of the Red Lion Hotel Group, he walks in that night and everyone he comes up to is, is either drunk or high on drugs and incoherent. What's he going to think about that? Is that going to impress him? Is that going to be a good thing? I do not think so. It is not praiseworthy behavior. When you know the next big event on the horizon is the visit of Jesus Christ as king and judge, then you need to have a clear mind. Be self-controlled. Live a self-controlled life. And as we read the newspapers and and watch the news, uh, Christians shouldn't be those who get themselves into a, a froth over the latest prediction of calamity. We know where history is going. Uh, We should be clear-minded and live with thoughtful purpose. We know that these are the last days. And the main focus here is that we control our minds so that we can pray. Pray more effectively. Pray more appropriately. And I think that's fascinating. It tells you something very important about prayer, doesn't it? Prayer is not about getting some emotional, frothy uh, speech that you don't understand. Um, It is not about um, some mystical way of whipping yourself up and you don't really know what you're doing. No, prayer is actually something that engages our minds. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be self-controlled. Prayer is a direct and thoughtful communication with God that prays in light of his return, that prays with the priority, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what prayer is. Keep your head clear to pray, verse 7. Secondly, keep loving and serving one another. Look at verse 8 again. 
above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. When a king is coming, what should you do? Well, you make church a priority. Did you notice that um, there's this phrase, one another, each other, that just keeps coming over and over? When you know the king is coming, then you commit to being at work with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in church. What is church? It is when God's people gather to serve one another in love. Why have you come today? I hope that you've come not as a consumer, but as a servant. You've come with a heart's desire that you've come to meet other people and love and serve this body, the gathering of God's people. That, that's what, that, if you've got a clear-sighted view that you know that the end of all things is near, that is how you will live. Uh, I hope that you're not one of those who are, uh, are just a consumer person that comes along, gets what you can get out of it, and then gets out the door as quickly as you can because you really don't want to have any messy relationships with other people. Do you see that that is completely antithetical to what Peter is teaching here? Love each other deeply. Um, you can't really live the Christian life uh, and obey the Bible without being engaged in a church in a meaningful way. You, you don't understand the Bible or don't understand the Christian faith if, if that's the case. Um, loving each other deeply and earnestly is not about having a whipped up frothy uh, emotion about people. It's about a steady commitment to love and serve awkward sinners. Because let's face it, you all are a bunch of awkward, repenting sinners, and so am I. The first atheist church has already split up because of disagreements. Not surprising if you don't have grace. Not surprising if you don't have grace. No, the only way that churches can keep functioning and going is if we pursue this command to love each other deeply, earnestly. Um, it is a sort of love that uh, if someone offends you with something they say or do or fail to say and do, love chooses to overlook. Love chooses to forget and move on. Spurgeon has a great chapter uh, to, in lectures to my students where he tells these pastors they need to have a blind eye and a deaf ear. That's the only way you're going to be a pastor because people say the daftest things and do stupid things. And what you need is a blind eye and a deaf ear to all that that overlooks and continues loving. I could tell you some hilarious things people have said to me which they probably, if they thought about it, they didn't really want to say or mean, hopefully. But I won't say that because it'll embarrass them because you were in this room, right? So, you know, and we all do it to each other, don't we? Have you, have you, is there anyone here who's who's never at the end of the day started groaning because of that thing you said and it just came out all clumsy and wrong and you didn't mean what, the way it came out and it was really awkward. And, have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? And, and, and at the end of the day, are you not longing that person will just forget what you said? Aren't you? 
oh, I just really hope they've forgotten what I said. <laughs> and you remember every time you see them, I'm so sorry, I didn't, I, I didn't, I'm sorry if that came out the wrong way. It's, I didn't. Now, the way that we're going to keep going as a church is if we love each other earnestly, deeply, and forget the daft things we say and do, overlook these minor offenses. A community without love is a very brutal and discouraging place to be, isn't it? When, when love is lacking, what's it like? Well, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action can be misunderstood. An offense can be taken uh, where none was meant. And when there's no love, then strife and conflict is rampant. Well, in the light of eternity, just around the corner, where we're going to spend all eternity with each other, let's be committed to, to sort of working out these relationships now. And one of the blessings of church life is that we rub up against people that we would never spend any time with normally. Would we? I just love the diversity of this church. People from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different life circumstances. And we have to rub up next to each other. And, you know, we find out the rough edges of each other. But as we pursue love, we become the people that God is calling us to be. And not only will we show our love by overlooking offense, but by a commitment to ungrumbling hospitality. Do you see that? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why does it say that? Because actually having people in your home eating your food and messing up your stuff is a bit of a pain, isn't it? And those people that you invited over who are just having the best time of their lives and they don't want to go home? Have you ever had that? It's never happened to me. I'm so thrilled however long people stay. But maybe it's happened to you and they just won't go and you're so tired. Just go! It's a bit of a hassle hospitality, isn't it? But Paul says if you, if you understand that Christ is returning and you want to live a life with, 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 with a priority of the kingdom of God, you're going to be committed to loving each other deeply and, and committed to hospitality together. And to do it without, un, without grumbling, ungrudgingly, not resenting the time and expense and the work and the effort. And can I encourage you, if you're a member in this church, would you commit to, to offering hospitality once a month to somebody? If you're not doing it yet, many of you are, which is a great joy. But if you've not done any, could you think about maybe one Sunday a month just inviting folk back for a meal and spending some time with you? Have you discovered the great grace and blessing of hospitality? I, I actually think my children love it, all the people that come around, and they get to meet all these amazing and interesting people. There's a great blessing in hospitality. Um, invite people who you don't know very well. Invite people who are different to you, who've got a different skin color, who maybe invite single people, invite older people, in, in, invite couples, invite... you know. Look to, to people who are different to you. Offer hospitality. It's such a blessing. And if you're sitting here today and you're just saying, I feel so lonely, nobody invites me, then why don't you invite other people and discover the joy of doing that? Don't just sit back and be a consumer waiting for everyone to serve you. Why don't you jump in and serve others? And you know what? The more and more we do that, the more we're going to grow love and community and grace within our fellowship. Isn't that the case? 
You know what? Hospitality, it starts simply with welcoming strangers on a Sunday morning. I know some of you hate that bit where welcome to the, welcome the person next to you. No, I don't want it to hurt. It's awkward. I'm British. I'm shy. I'm an introvert. I understand that. If you're an introvert, I understand that. Why do we do that? Well, I just, I don't know, next time you're in Holly, walk into a complete, a complete new church and just see what it feels like to be like a stranger again. Um, I would encourage you all to this pew ministry of coming Sunday by Sunday and say, Lord, uh, help me to sit next to somebody I can encourage today. And even if we don't do that thing up front, turn to the person next to you, you know, after service, service, why don't you lean over and start a conversation? Welcome them. Get to know them. Uh, if you want a ministry of welcoming, go down to the bookstall. Uh, people who are new, don't know what to do, will be standing with a cup of coffee on their own and, and looking at the bookstall, even if they're not interested in books, because it's something to do. Go and welcome. Say hello. Do you know what? If you're a member of this church, this is your home. It's your home, isn't it? Now, if I, if I walk into my home and there's a complete stranger there, I don't ignore them. I want to check they're not stealing things. Uh, but it would be very odd to go for like an hour of just completely ignoring that person in the room. No. This is your home. Oh, the pastors should be more welcoming. No, you welcome. The elders should be more welcoming. You know, you welcome. If you're, you know, you, as soon as you remember, you can't grumble about the church. You are the church. This is your home. Welcome. It starts here, doesn't it? A commitment to welcoming new people. And uh, do it without grumbling, Peter says, because he knows what we're like. But not only are we to keep loving each other and showing hospitality, but we're called to serving one another. Verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. I love that verse. Think about that verse. When we serve one another, we are experiencing God's grace in its variated forms. Isn't that wonderful? God has actually lots of grace that he wants to give us, and he does it through each one of us using the talents and gifts he's given us to serve others. You want to experience God's grace? You think it's all about just this? I'm going to come here, have a mystical experience with God? You already want to experience the grace of God? Get to know the family. Use your gifts to serve the family. Let them serve you with their grace gifts. And you will experience the manifold grace of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You see, God's created you with unique uh, gifts and talents. And then he saved you and he's given more grace gifts that we may love and serve each other. I think one of the great uh, ways that we show that we've grown as a Christian is when we, uh, we move on from being a consumer to being a servant. We're in a culture that is a consumer culture. Serve me. You know, what can I get out of this? And, and one of the marks that we begin to mature in Christ is that we're not coming to church saying, how is this going to serve me? How, is it, is, how can I serve other people? God has given me gifts. I'm going to use them 
to express God's grace to others. Uh, if we start to think a consumer way, well, verse 10 to 12 really gets us back on track. See, in the light of, of the end of all things, we're called to be servants of others and worshippers of God. Well, are you using your gifts to serve others? That's the simple question, isn't it? Are you? In what way are you using your gifts to serve this body and be an expression of God's grace? Um, if we'd read on in Matthew 24, Jesus tells the parable of the, the king who gives out the talents, and off he goes. And when he comes back, he's basically asking, um, what's the return on my investment? I've, in, I've given you these gifts and resources. Uh, what have you done with them? And his delight is when people use those gifts and resources to multiply its impact and its fruitfulness. And the tragic guy is the guy says, well, I just buried it in the ground. I did nothing, you know. I don't want to be one of those guys. I want to be the guy who invests for his kingdom. And there's two main uh, categories here. There's speaking gifts and serving gifts that kind of encapsulate all the different gifts that are there. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. But the main goal as we serve each other with these gifts is that we will keep glorifying God, which is my third point of verse 11. This is the main goal, that we keep glorifying God. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking. Brother, do you want a drink of water? Come on, have a drink of water. Let me serve you with a bit of water there, brother. (laughs) Sounds rough. Um, verse 11 if anyone speaks he should do it as one speaking the very words of God if anyone serves he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ to him be the glory and the power forever and ever see that's the main goal in everything that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ so there's a question how do we speak in a way that glorifies God how do we do that well we make it our business to speak only what God has clearly spoken that's the point isn't it how do I speak in a way that glorifies God by speaking his words and whatever our context whether that's Sunday school fellowship groups time out evangelism preaching whatever we aim to speak God's words um, I have nothing of value to say, really, unless I'm speaking God's word. Um, and if I get up here and simply explain and proclaim God's word to you, and you get benefit from that, who gets the glory? Uh, it's not, oh, Paul, he's a good speaker. That's, it's probably not true. The point is, it's, oh, Paul tells us about God's word. I learned from God. Isn't God amazing? How I love learning more about his word today. In that way, God is glorified when we speak his words. How do we serve in such a way that he gets the glory? Uh, Whether that's welcome teams or meal ministry or helping in the nursery or doing the soundboard or finances or music. How do we serve in a way that he's glorified? Well, I think it takes us back to verse 7. That we are praying that we are looking to the strength that God supplies. Um, Whether we feel like serving or not, whether it's the first time we've done it and and it feels very stressful, or whether we've done this thing a hundred times, 
we should take time to ask God to supply the grace and the strength to enable us to serve. I once heard John Piper um, give this great practical wisdom that as a pastor, he was quite often being asked to visit folks at very inconvenient times. And uh, it was hard for him not to feel resentful when he got the call and felt duty-bound to start heading to the hospital or something like that. And so what he's doing in the car is he's driving, starting off the journey feeling a bit resentful that his plans have been messed up. He's praying, Lord, would you put in my heart a joy to meet this person, a love that I might serve them, so that when I meet them, I'm genuinely thankful for the opportunity. And when we serve in that way, who gets the glory? God does. The truth is, if we are only relying on our own resources to serve, we will very quickly uh, give up. Let's be honest, serving tea and coffee, not that exciting really, is it? There's lots of jobs that are not really that exciting. What's going to keep us at it? Because we are looking to God to provide the strength and the grace so that we're doing it as a way of worship as a way to bless and serve other people. And when we do it in that way, God gets the glory, doesn't he? Uh, This week we had the Thanksgiving service for the life of Raymond Harvey. And because I was studying this passage, I just sat back in wonder at the manifold expression of God's grace that was evident in that meeting. Just think about it. Just think about it. Um, there, were, there were members of the church there. There were family members. There were neighbors. Some were Christians. But others were not Christians. And yet God's grace was evident in lots of ways. Phil Murray played the piano. And he showed he had very happy fingers. Especially when we sang, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. I, I heard happiness in those notes. And he came and, and, and gave and serving by tinkling the ivories. Uh, Moira in the office had uh, put together, used the computer skills and printing skills to provide a bulletin, uh, a handout so that we could actually have the words so that we could all sing along and see some pictures of Raymond. It would have been tough without that. Uh, George Nosh, uh, Nosh, I'm tired, George Nash, got up and he shared some personal thoughts about Raymond and he led us in a wonderful prayer. Caught up our thoughts in prayer to God. It was a beautiful thing. And Tom Lawson, he led the service in a God-honoring way. He frequently quoted scripture. And then he preached a meditation on how the book of Ecclesiastes, um, the meaning of it in the light of Christ, how uh, basically the the day of death is better than the day of birth for those who put their faith in Christ. I'd never heard that. It was beautiful. It was great. He taught me from God's word. I heard God's voice. It was an encouragement. He he, he encouraged the believers and he held out the offer to unbelievers that they could enter into the same hope and confidence even in the face of death because of Jesus. He, He extended it. And afterwards, there were people like Chris Dennis and Evelyn Sangster and Doreen McLean and others who provided foods and drinks to enable people to stay around and talk and express love and care and concern. Members of the church came to encourage the Harvey family to express love and sympathy. Um, And your financial giving to the church enabled a clean and welcoming building because we can afford to have a cleaner and caretakers who open the doors. We, 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 We met in a warm space because you gave money so the heat could be on. We have electricity 
because you've paid some money so we can pay the utilities so we had a PA system and the lights were on. Isn't that amazing? All of these different people, and not one of us could have done it on our own. Not one of us. But all of us together, through speaking gifts, through serving gifts, we work together in such a way that God was glorified through Jesus Christ. And he received glory and praise. And it was a witness to all those who came. I think church is a brilliant thing. What a wonderful thing. These are the priorities for the people of God. Are they your priorities this morning? Get stuck in. Let's experience more of God's grace together. Let's pray.